right. Good Friday. The Pete Callender Show on News Talk 1110 99.3 WBT, hour number three. 704-570-1110 and 1-800-WBT-1110. If you'd like to weigh in, you can also email Pete at thepetecallendershow.com. And uh, you can hit me up on Twitter, at least until Elon Musk destroys it, at Pete Callender. One one last point here. Well, okay, I lied. It may be two points. Two points. Number one, um, the argument that we heard from the left whenever uh, conservatives get banned off of uh, platforms – you know, when Donald Trump got kicked off of Twitter and then Facebook, right? When the when the censorious autocrats of the left knock out uh, conservatives off of platforms, we usually hear from these leftists on social media, well, you should just build your own platform if you don't like it. And, of course, they go about trying to do so, and they don't uh, come anywhere near rivaling the existing platforms, because those existing platforms were the early platforms and they had good products and they enticed everybody to get on board. And so that's where everybody is. That's where all of the discussions are being had. Uh, And this argument always from the left is something along the lines of, well, it's a free market. Aren't you a free market capitalist? This isn't censorship, which it is censorship. It's not government censorship, but it is censorship. When you self-censor, that censorship too. It's not government censorship, right? Anyway, that whole argument was always garbage. We always knew this was garbage, and this Elon Musk affair has proven that to be the case. It has proven how bad faith those arguments were. The private business, the build-your-own-internet argument in defense of big tech censorship was always a garbage excuse to let Silicon Valley silence speech that it disagrees with. And the meltdown about Elon Musk's offer to buy Twitter makes it more obvious than ever. This is L. Reynolds at uh, thefederalist.com saying when big tech companies like Twitter have censored users or content that challenges their agendas in the past, uh, a gaggle of censorship aficionados inevitably insists that Because the First Amendment doesn't regulate private companies, they can silence whoever the heck they want. Right? That's been their argument. Government's not doing it. It's not against the law. You should just, I mean, even when uh, uh, Amazon Web Services, even when they, like, literally booted Parler off the Internet, remember that? The response from these jerks was, uh, oh, well, you know, just build your own backbone of the Internet. (laughs) Just, Just create your own Internet. Regardless of whether Musk's offer is accepted, it has further exposed the silliness of the build-your-own-speech platform argument. These people never truly wanted freedom of expression. They were very happy to cheer censorship under the guise of private sector freedom and when it helped silence their opponents. But now that their grip over the channel is uh, the channels of discourse is threatened, they've revealed that their cries of censorship is fine because freedom were all just a ruse to gain more power. She's exactly right. And there was one other point here uh, that uh, David Harsani made at National Review. He says, uh, the progressives throwing a tantrum over Musk's bid are not primarily anxious about the potential uptick in violent threats or doxing. They're frightened of stories that undercut their power. 
Progressives act as if virtually all dissent from their positions is tantamount to hate speech and misinformation. That's a neat trick. We saw the same thing with the whole, you know, it's okay to punch a Nazi, and a Nazi is everybody that disagrees with me on anything, right? He's exactly right. This is disrupting their grip on the narrative crafting channels. They, uh, they act as if all dissent is hate speech and misinformation, even when they're wrong. Right. Even when they get the story as wrong as they got on Hunter Biden's laptop, even when they're that wrong. Those who believe it's okay to compel Americans to buy state mandated insurance, those who want to dictate how corporations compensate their employees, who want to tell you what energy you must use and what car you must drive, who want to force nuns to buy abortive fashions. They're not, it goes without saying, reliable champions of property rights, folks. That's that. Let that all go. Bury that line of argument now from these people. If you don't think I'm going to be throwing that in people's face for years to come when they come at me with, well, you should just, you know, start your own. Uh -uh, Zip it. That's what I'm saying. Elon Musk. Why have the past 10 years been uniquely stupid? What do you think? Maybe it's too much to lay it all at the feet of social media, but maybe not. Jonathan Haidt, H-A-I-D-T, I don't know how to pronounce it. H-A-I-D-T. Is it hate or hate or hated? Hated. Hated. Anyway, he's writing at The Atlantic. This thing is 11 pages. And I shall read all... No, I'm just kidding. I'm just going to give you the highlights. Now, okay, but it's me highlighting it here, and I'm an over-highlighter, so I apologize. But... He says, what would it have been like to live in Babel in the days after its destruction? In the book of Genesis, we're told that the descendants of Noah built a great city in the land of Shinar. They built a tower with its top in the heavens to make a name for themselves. God was offended by the hubris of humanity, said, look, they are one people and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. Nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language there so that they will not understand one another's speech. The story of Babel is the best metaphor, Jonathan says, for what has happened in America in the 2010s, for the last decade, and for the fractured country we now inhabit. Something went terribly wrong very suddenly. We are disoriented. We are unable to speak the same language or recognize the same truth. We are cut off from one another and from the past been clear for a a while now that red america and blue america becoming two different countries basically claiming the same territory with two different versions of the constitution economics and american history but babel is not a story about tribalism it's a story about the fragmentation of everything it's about the shattering of all that had seemed solid the scattering of people who had been a community it's a metaphor for what is happening not only between red and blue but within the left and within the right, as well as within universities, companies, professional associations, museums, and even families. Babel is a metaphor for what some forms of social media have done to nearly all of the groups and institutions most important to the country's future and to us as a people. How did it happen? And what does it portend for American life? 
News Talk 1110-993-WBT. Jonathan Haidt writing at The Atlantic why the past 10 years have been uniquely stupid. He quotes from a book by Robert Wright, 1999 book called Non-Zero, The Logic of Human Destiny. And he wrote at the time that history involves a series of transitions driven by rising population density plus new technologies. Uh, And he gives some examples like writing, roads, the printing press. This makes sense, right? Even if you have just a tiny village, that's still more dense than an individual living out in the middle of nowhere. So these things, these transitions created new possibilities for mutually beneficial trade and learning. The early internet of the 90s, with its chat rooms, its message boards, and its email, exemplified the non-zero thesis, as did the first wave of social media platforms, which launched around 2003, almost 20 years ago. Isn't that amazing? 2011, remember the Arab Spring? Occupy movement, right? You could say that 2011 was the year that humanity rebuilt the Tower of Babel. Google Translate became available in 2011. He goes on to say, let me go to the next page here. See, I'm just giving you the highlights. Historically, civilizations have relied on shared blood, gods, and enemies to counteract the tendency to split apart as they grow. But what is it that holds together large and diverse secular democracies such as the United States? I have been asking this question for years. It's amazing how many different answers I get, which kind of undermines the answers in and of themselves. Because if, if I ask 10 people, what is the glue that holds Americans together? And I get 10 different answers. That's not glue. Those are different answers, right? And maybe that's what makes America unique is that everybody can have different answers or something. But that to me sounds pretty troubling that there isn't sort of an agreed upon set of principles. Because if we could figure that out, maybe write them down or something, just throwing that out there. Ooh, we could list them in number form too. Social scientists have identified three major forces that bind successful democracies together. Social capital, which is your social networks and the like, high levels of trust uh, that go with that social capital. Strong institutions and shared stories. Social media has weakened all three of them. I wouldn't just chalk this up to social media. There are people that have been hard at work to undermine our shared sense of place and our shared stories. Right? The the postmodernist destruction of the Enlightenment ideals, this, this is the point. You obliterate the things that tie people together. And the purpose is to fragment so you then can take power. This is the same reason why I said when I talk about anarchists, like you you very rarely meet real anarchists, actual people who say, I don't want there to be any government. Most of them, they're actually more libertarian. That's true, though. It's actually it's actually true. But no, when you when you run across these left wingers that have the a anarchy signs, you know, and they're like pretend they're. They're cosplaying. They're pretending. They're acting. That's not real anarchy. They're temporary anarchists. They are. They want some anarchy for a little while just to scare the crap out of you so you cave to their demands, which is usually more statism. 
They want more control. It's actually the complete opposite of anarchy. The, the real spectrum, not left-right, it's tyranny-anarchy. That's the spectrum. That's the line. If you want to think in terms of a linear, because it's actually a grid with social and economic, but whatever. But if you take all, if you're going to look at only one axis, just an X axis, left to right, it's tyranny and anarchy. And the the key is to get as as far towards the anarchy side, at least for me, in my opinion, and the opinion of the founding fathers, was you want to be as close down to that anarchy side as you can without going full anarchy, because you know you never go full anarchy. So you don't want to go too far down that that line, but you want to go far enough so as to preserve as much individual liberty as possible against the tyranny of the state. Government, a fearful master, you know, decent servant, fearful master, just like fire. Okay, that's a paraphrase of George Washington. Um, so these three things hold democracies together. Social capital, strong institutions, and shared stories. But gradually, social media users became more comfortable sharing intimate details of their lives with strangers and corporations. And as they did so, they became more adept at putting on performances and managing their personal brand. Activities that might impress others, but that do not deepen friendships in the way that a private phone conversation will. Once social media platforms had trained users to spend more time performing and less time connecting, the stage was set for the major transformation which began in 2009, which was what? Viral dynamics. Before 2009, Facebook had given users a very simple timeline, right? Whatever got posted by your friends and family that you were friends with, you saw. And you'd have to scroll down, scroll down, and then, oh, okay, I remember this from yesterday. Now I'm all caught up. They also offered users a way to like the posts. And then Twitter came along same year and gave us the retweet button in 09. Facebook then copied that so you could share. And now you've got viral dynamics. Things can be amplified and spread. It's not just about the connection. Now it's about the performance. Right? The like button began to produce data about what engaged users Facebook developed algorithms to bring each user the content most likely to generate a like or an interaction and eventually the share. Later research showed that posts that trigger emotions, especially anger at outgroups, are the most likely to be shared. Why, by Jove, I think we have a winning formula. So by 2013, social media had become a new game. Posts, pictures, comments, they could go viral now. That wasn't the original mechanism. Those protocols were not in place. And then this new game encouraged dishonesty and mob dynamics. The newly tweaked platforms were almost perfectly designed to bring out our most moralistic and least reflective selves. The volume of outrage was shocking. It was just this kind of twitchy and explosive spread of anger that James Madison had tried to protect us from as he was drafting the U.S. Constitution. Framers were excellent social psychologists. They knew that democracy had an Achilles heel because it depended on the collective judgment of the people, and democratic communities are subject to what Madison called the turbulency and weakness of unruly passions. 
The key to designing a sustainable republic, therefore, was to build in mechanisms to slow things down, to cool passions, require compromise, give leaders some insulation from the mania of the moment while still holding them accountable to the people periodically, say, on Election Day. Right? This is why when, you know, when uh, people say, oh, there ought to be a law, we need to do something, or people complain about gridlock in Congress— I'm, I'm not, no, I'm not on board. I am totally fine with them not doing anything. Legislation that gets pushed through in reaction to the moment's passion usually is terrible. Usually is terrible. I like the slow pace. That's the way we guard against dumbassery. Madison, his insight about democracy's vulnerability, he notes that People are so prone to factionalism that where no substantial occasion presents itself, the most frivolous and fanciful distinctions have been sufficient to kindle their unfriendly passions and excite their most violent conflicts. What does that mean? When people are bored, Madison says they're going to highlight like the the tiniest little difference. And that's what they're going to focus on to get mad. Social media has both magnified and weaponized the frivolous. Jonathan Haidt in The Atlantic, he goes on to say, it's not just the waste of time and scarce attention uh, that matters. It's the continual chipping away of trust. An autocracy can deploy propaganda or use fear to motivate the behaviors that it desires. But a democracy depends on widely internalized acceptance of the legitimacy of rules, norms, and institutions. When citizens lose trust in elected leaders, health authorities, the courts, the police, universities, the integrity of elections then every decision becomes contested. Every election becomes a life-and-death struggle to save the country from the other side. The literature, he goes on to say, is complex. He breaks some of this stuff down. I'm skipping ahead. Um, But on balance, social media amplifies political polarization. It foments populism, especially right-wing populism, and is associated with the spread of misinformation. Now, I do have a theory about why it uh, foments populism, particularly on the right. I think it's because uh, the left already has autocratic tendencies. Anyway, one result is that young people educated in the post-Babel era are less likely to arrive at a coherent story of who we are as a people. They're less likely to share any such story with those who attended different schools or were uh, educated in a different decade. He talks about, he has a quote earlier in the piece that I I did not mention, but somebody is quoted as saying, uh, it's like we gave a loaded gun to a four-year-old, talking about social media. And he says it's not really a gun, but like like a typical gun, like a pistol or something. It's more of a dart gun, he says. And so we just keep shooting darts at each other. It's not going to kill you. But over time, you take enough of these darts, right? It might. The dart guns, he calls, of social media give... More power to trolls and provocateurs while silencing good citizens. Research by uh, political scientists Alexander Bohr and Michael Bang Peterson, as as I call them, the Bohr and Bang duo. No, I don't, actually. Uh, But uh, they found that a small subset of people on social media platforms are highly concerned with gaining status. This is what you hear when uh, uh, people say they're chasing clout. That's what this is. That they are more concerned with gaining status, and they're using... Uh, They're willing to use aggression to do so. 
They admit that in their online discussions, they often curse, they make fun of their opponents, they get blocked by other users or reported for inappropriate comments. Across eight studies, Bohr and Peterson found that being online did not make most people more aggressive or hostile. Rather, it allowed a small number of aggressive people to attack a much larger set of victims. Even a small number of jerks were able to dominate discussion forums because non-jerks leave. Yeah, they get turned off. Also, research finds women and black people are harassed disproportionately, so the digital public square is less welcoming to their voices. Then there was a study called the Hidden Tribes Study. Um, It was a survey of like 8,000 Americans about five years ago or so. And uh, it was done by a pro-democracy group called More in Common. The one furthest to the right, they, they broke down people into in groups and they found devoted conservatives. They were all the way on the right. They were 6% of the U.S. population. Furthest on the left, progressive activists, um, they were 8%. Okay, so 6%, the most conservative, 8%, the most progressive. The progressive activists were by far the most prolific group on social media, 70% had shared political content over the previous year. The devoted conservatives, they were number two, and they clock in at 56%. These two extreme groups are similar in a lot of ways. They are the whitest, the richest of all the groups. And that suggests that America is being torn apart by a battle between two subsets of an elite who are not representative of the broader society. The richest, whitest groups, furthest left, furthest right, And they're the ones that are spamming the bejeebus out of social media with the most political content. He says political extremists don't just shoot darts at their enemies either. They spend a lot of their ammo targeting dissenters or nuanced thinkers like me uh, on their own team. I had this happen to me just two days ago when some pro Ted Bud people attacked me for not being sufficiently pro Ted Bud. And all I'm asking is what I said on the program the other day. I said, I would like to see Ted Budd debate because I'd like to know if he's going to be able to debate Sherry Beasley or is the plan just to not debate her? And, uh, you know, we'll see what happens. Is that the plan? I'd like to know. I don't have any right to know. But if you want my vote, I'm kind of, yeah, I'm going to have to see you debate. So that's, I mean, it's you, you, you are not even going to gain entry into the show for me. Uh, not like this show here, but like I, I'm not even going to entertain you as a candidate. I think in a in a primary, if you refuse to debate a single time, because I need that. That is a criteria for the gig, man. It's it's one of the criteria, unless of course your plan is to dodge Sherry Beasley as well. But then you should tell me that that this is a tactic. I don't need to debate. I'm leading, and so your argument is going to be that as long as I'm leading in the polls, I refuse to debate, and so. Okay, well, let's just hope you never trail in the polls because then you're going to have to debate and I have no idea how you're going to perform. So I said that and this prompted this tirade against me by these folks on Twitter. Because I and they made all sorts of assumptions, of course, which I have, you know, shoot down each time, but this is this is what they do. They they enforce sort of this, you know, unithought. It's not just chasing moderates and and um uh, centrists and stuff and apolitical people. It's not just about chasing them out of the public square. It's also about making sure that everybody abides by what we say, you know, on our own team. When our public square is governed by mob dynamics, 
unrestrained by due process. We don't get justice and inclusion. We get a society that ignores context, proportionality, mercy, and truth. And I tend to agree. News Talk 1110-993-WBT, theatlantic.com. You can read this whole piece. I'm giving you the highlights. Jonathan Haidt, uh, why the past 10 years of American life have been uniquely stupid. Uh, spoiler alert, the too-long-didn't-read version is social media and the rise, of, or the implementation, I should say, of virality. When they put in the share button on Facebook, when they put the retweet button on Twitter, this now allowed messages to uh, to spread quickly. And people began performing versus uh, connecting. It used to be like, oh, nice pictures of Graham Graham, you know, that kind of thing. And now it's, you know, Graham Graham's the terrible person. She's to blame for all my problems. And, and then that gets amplified. Oh, my gosh, look at this person attacking Graham's. I always say unchallenged ideas are easy to hold. And I say get your news from multiple sources. The most reliable cure for confirmation bias is interaction with people who don't share your beliefs. That's why I I engage with people who do not agree with me. It makes my argument stronger. Resistance to pressure builds strength. Makes my argument stronger, makes me better able. This is why I was talking about Ted Budd in the the debates. I don't want to see somebody get up there that has no experience in a debate. Because it matters. Screwing up in a discussion, in a debate, when people are watching, when the stakes are really high, that matters. So... They confront you with counter-evidence and counter-argument. John Stuart Mills, he said, he who knows only his own side of the case knows little of that, right? How do you truly know your argument unless you know your opponent's argument? He urged us to seek out conflicting views from people who actually believe them. People who think differently and are willing to speak up if they disagree with you make you smarter, almost as if they are extensions of your own brain. People who try to silence or intimidate their critics make themselves stupider he goes on to say let me see here skip ahead again this is 11 pages just giving you the highlights um what happens when an institution is not well maintained and internal disagreement ceases either because its people have become ideologically uniform or because they become afraid to dissent he says i think this is what has happened to a lot of america's key institutions in the mid to late 2010s they got stupider and mass because social media instilled in their members a chronic fear of getting darted or shot, shot with a dart gun, right? The shift was most pronounced in universities, scholarly associations, creative industries, and political organizations at every level. And so it was pervasive, it was so pervasive rather, that it established new behavioral norms that were backed by new policies almost seemingly overnight. The new omnipresence of enhanced virality, social media meant that a single word uttered by a professor or a leader or a journalist, even if spoken with positive intent, could lead to a social media firestorm, triggering an immediate dismissal or you know, some long, drawn-out investigation by the institution. Participants in our key institutions began self-censoring to an unhealthy degree, holding back critiques of policies and ideas even those presented in class by their students that they believe to be ill-supported or wrong. Now, the process has played out differently 
on the right and the left because their activist wings subscribe to different narratives with different sacred values. I mentioned earlier that study called the Hidden Tribes Study. It tells us that for the folks all the way on the right, the devoted conservatives, they score highest on beliefs related to authoritarianism. They share a narrative in which America is eternally under threat from enemies outside and subversives, uh, subversives within. They see life as a battle between patriots and traitors, right? They emphasize, uh, they emphasize order, uh, decorum, and slow rather than radical change. He then talks about January 6th. Um, you know, the traditional punishment for treason is death. And he says, hence the battle cry, hang Mike Pence. Right-wing death threats, many delivered by anonymous accounts, are proving effective in cowing traditional conservatives, for example, in driving out local elections officials who failed to stop the steal. The wave of threats delivered to dissenting Republican members of Congress has similarly pushed many of the remaining moderates to quit or go silent. Now, over on the left, the Democrats have also been hard hit by structural stupidity, but in a different way. In the Democratic Party, the struggles between the progressive wing and the more moderate factions, right? That is ongoing. The problem is the left controls the commanding heights of the culture, universities, news organizations, Hollywood, museums, advertising, Silicon Valley, teachers unions, colleges. And in many of these institutions, dissent has been stifled. When everybody was issued a dart gun in the early 2010s, a lot of left-leaning institutions started shooting themselves in the brain. And unfortunately, those were the brains that inform, instruct, and entertain most of the country. Highly recommend you read the entire piece. Highly recommend you have a fantastic weekend. Happy Easter. Winterbull up next. I'll see you Monday. Don't break anything while I'm gone.